Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing, doing okay. Doing okay. Today on the show, we have Representative Rachel Roberts. She's been on the show several times before, but what we would talk to her about this time was her new bill to legalize marijuana in the state of Kentucky. It will do a lot more things than just that, but that's the big kicker. Uh, you know, she's been working on this pretty diligently, it sounds like, uh, and I was really glad to be able to talk to her about this. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm really hopeful for this issue more than I have been in a while just because of this conversation we had uh, I thought it went great what did you think Jasmine yeah I agree you know it it's something that is going to be hard to pass with the Republican legislature but we talked a little bit about you know how things could change on the federal level and we need to be ready to have a framework in place and it sounds like Rachel Roberts is like really doing the work of figuring out the best way to regulate it absolutely and, and you know we talk a lot you know when we have such huge Republican supermajorities in our legislature, like what's the point of of Democrats in the legislature? And I think this was a really good conversation for that because it kind of showed how even, you know, if this bill doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of passing, it still is able to further a conversation. It's able to provide a framework mm-hmm. if the feds come in and it's kind of able to, to start a movement. Uh, and, I, you know, that even if you don't care about marijuana, it's probably worth it to listen to that conversation just, just for that piece. But before we get to the interview, we have lots of things to talk about. I'm going to be telling us a little bit about some trouble at Kentucky State University, the public historically black college and university in in Frankfurt. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what's going on over there. Jasmine, we had another wild JCPS school board meeting. It was nuts. Mm-hmm. There was singing by, a, by a, a, a school board member. I don't know if that's in the notes, but it did happen. Uh, and a lot of other not as fun things happened. Uh, we'll be talking about that, that as well. And COVID is again getting very much worse here in the state of Kentucky. So we'll be talking about that as well. So without any further ado, let's talk about Kentucky State. So Jasmine, Kentucky State University, you know, but maybe not everybody knows, is Kentucky's only public HBCU. HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And it is facing scrutiny in the face of what one Kentucky columnist calls, quote, cascading scandals, unquote. So it's not great over there. The biggest thing is that the president of the university, whose name is M. Christopher Brown, has resigned. His resignation comes about a month after KSU Regents called a meeting to hire an outside auditor to look into the finances at the university. So in addition, the school and Brown himself were facing multiple lawsuits for misconduct. So, you know, they were auditing things, there were lawsuits flying around, and then the president resigned. Those are some of those cascading scandals that went on. In the face of this, two different board members on their university also resigned. One of them was Candace McGraw, the CEO of the CBG Airport, who actually did give a little bit of comment about why she quit. She said that she couldn't dedicate enough time to the hard work uh, being a regent required, which, you know, in the face of such uh, a lot going on there, you know, good for her. Let somebody else who can do the work step in and do it. So so that's kind of what, what we're seeing people uh, bailing out because it's going to be a lot of work. Immediately after the president resigned, Governor Andy Bashir called for an independent audit into the finances of KSU, and he also signed an executive order allowing the Kentucky Council on Post-Secondary Education to, quote, provide guidance and oversight during the review, unquote. So um, the Kentucky Council of Post-Secondary Education is going to be deeply involved in this uh, outside audit. 
Aaron Thompson, who is the president of the KYCPE, is leading the probe on that end of things. That's relevant because Thompson had been tapped as the KSU interim president from 2016 to 2017, the last time there was a vacancy. And we'll get more about uh, Aaron Thompson in a second. He's a very important person in the midst of this. So M. Christopher Brown, who is KSU's now former president, he was selected in a process that was very fraught. He was a very controversial hire at the time because he had resigned under a cloud of suspicion for financial issues when he was the provost at Alcorn State University, a different HBCU, which I believe is in Georgia. But So yes, uh, he resigned his last, one of his previous jobs under a cloud of suspicion for financial issues, and now he has quit under a cloud of other financial issues here at Kentucky State. So Aaron Thompson, the, the person we were just talking about at the KYCPE, he was the interim at the time when, when M. Christopher Brown was hired, and he actually applied for the presidency, but he wasn't even given an interview. Along with Brown, the other two finalists for this job were a provost of a university in Louisiana who had received a vote of no confidence in the prior year from the regents at that university, and a Supreme Court justice in Oklahoma who only really had minimal higher education uh, experience. So, so this was why that, that search was very fraught. It produced somebody who hadn't had any much experience and two people who had really serious allegations around impropriety in, the, in their records. So at the same time, they had an interim um, who, uh, by all accounts, was doing a very good job. Or maybe not all accounts, almost all accounts. So the faculty senate, after the, the selection was made, they actually passed a vote of no confidence in the Kentucky State Board of Regents. So, so people were not happy with how the selection went. Um, yeah, Representative Derek Graham, who's also very tightly wound into the Kentucky State University community, um, he's somebody who is a graduate of, of KSU. He represents, uh, his district includes KSU there in Frankfurt, and he had some really choice words for the Board of Regents as well for their attitude towards uh, towards Aaron Thompson. And really, at the time, it was really kind of tragic because Thompson had not yet been selected uh, as the um, the leader of KYCPE. I think it was kind of a happy ending in that story because he kind of ended up becoming the KSU, uh, the boss of KSU altogether, uh, along with UK, UofL, and a lot of other places. And I mean, he's been doing that job for quite a while, uh, as long as we've been doing the show. And he's somebody that we've tracked throughout his tenure. And I mean, from what I can see, he's doing a very good job. So in addition to the immediate issues facing KSU, there are deeper problems. While enrollment has risen lately, I think they're up to like 2,500 students or 20, yeah, 2,500 students, which is up from like less than 2,000 kind of recently, more and more public universities, big public universities like UK, this big state schools, they are pushing for diversification. And, and they're really competing for, for the best black students who in the past had chosen to go to HBCUs. In addition, not only are public, uh, big public schools pushing for those students, private HBCUs are also facing that competition from big public schools, and they are also providing increasing competition uh, and often have much more prestige, and they have privately funded endowments, uh, and they can really compete for the, the other students that the public, student, the public universities don't get, and the public HBCUs um, are, are stuck dealing with the public money that they get uh, and the tuition that they can raise, um, and, and they're, they're in a very difficult position. And, and KSU, as Kentucky's public HBCU, is in a tough spot because of all the competition they're facing outside of all kinds of channels. Aaron Thompson did give comment uh, about this story, and he said last week uh, that KSU was, quote, a viable, valid, and vital institution to Kentucky, unquote. I, I agree with that. Uh, you know, 
I think Kentucky State is an important part of our history, and it's an important part of our present. And, and, and HBCUs absolutely have an important part to play on the education scene, and especially public HBCUs. I, I think that that's an important way that we as a state government uh, can, can really show our, our care and how much we think uh, th- these types of things are important. So that's what's going on, but I also did want to shout out Linda Blackford for her reporting on this issue. Linda Blackford's a columnist for the Herald Leader. She both like filed a story that was like a story in the newspaper and wrote a column about this in the past week. I would really recommend reading both, especially her column, which adds a lot more context than we went into here. More quotes from important members of the KSU community like Senator Reggie Thomas and John Thielen. So, you know, check that out. But yeah, a really sad situation up there at, at Kentucky State. The governor's been involved and uh, it seems Seems like the the second time in and you know just this past decade that they've been in a really tough spot. So that's what's going on there. I do have a question. Does it like feel odd to you that the guy who like wasn't hired by them is now leading the investigation? Well, yes, but he also like led the investigation last time. Like when they had, yeah, the, yeah when they had, and and people were satisfied with that. A lot of people, especially in the community thought that he did a very good job with it and, and I mean honestly it's kind of like hey you did a good job last time do you want to do it again more than they didn't give you the job so we're asking you to do this yes that is there is a lot more context there there's a lot of context about the board of regents and the internal politics of that group which yeah uh, I would just recommend you read Linda Blackford's column about it because it talks a lot about about that specifically also the state journal um, the Frankfurt newspaper has some editorials there that are that are worth reading about that those are all linked in the show notes which will come out in the newsletter so yeah you should click on those jasmine go read them (laughs) well i i know that but i was trying to provide some context for our listeners yeah and also alcorn state is in mississippi mississippi i'm sorry in case any alcorn state fans are listening (laughs) jumped right over alabama and i i called it georgia yeah i you know all right all right jasmine uh let's switch gears a little bit staying in the education sphere though tell us about this uh new wild jcps board meeting that happened yesterday the 27th all right so the jcps school board met tuesday night and uh the Courier Journal described the scene as basically three camps. So an anti-mask camp, an anti-critical race theory camp, and then like a pro-equity camp. And um, there was heightened security for the meeting, including having to go through metal detectors. And, you know, I think this, of course, comes after a man was charged with threatening Marty Polio, the superintendent. For the meeting, there were 45 minutes set aside for public comment, um, but most comments were not really about items on the agenda. (laughs) Um, CRT, critical race theory, was not on the agenda, um, but that's what a lot of people wanted to talk about, and they also went over the 45 minutes. Um, A lot of the anti-CRT crowd was and anti-mask crowd, I guess, was kind of rowdy. Like, they got into shouting matches with some of the council members or arguments with them. It was just a ruckus. (laughs) Sounds like a big mess, yeah. Yeah, you know, so one speaker who was a retired JCPS teacher said that Marxists are trying to start a race war and that JCPS curriculum is full of Marxist oppression and victimhood, and she called it anti-racist racism. 
Uh, whatever that means. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a talking point from some of these anti-CRT people that we've seen pop up a few times. Like, you are a racist because you believe in anti-racism. So, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah it's, a, it's interesting for sure. There were also um, nurses, one whose name was Karen, spoke against the mask mandate, um, calling it medical tyranny. One spoke out against online instruction, which also, you know, wasn't, there was discussion about adding virtual elementary school curriculum. Right. Um, but it wasn't all on topic. <laughs> <laughs> sure enough. I will say, um, but you know, there were at this meeting, unlike some of the others that we've talked about, there were people on both sides, you know, mm. it was probably half, anti-mask, anti-CRT, and half pro-mask, pro-equity, I would say. Yeah, it uh, sounds like the other side's kind of getting a little bit more organized and actually getting out and yeah. saying things, yeah. Yeah, which which I think is important to do, you know, if, if right-wing people are going to infiltrate these school board meetings, you know, um, the other side needs to have people yeah. supporting I, things. Meet the challenge, right. yeah. Um, so the actual things that were on the agenda, the big one was a mask mandate. So the JCPS board voted for and passed a universal mask mandate for this coming school year. Um, and, and that means everybody regardless of vaccination status. And so the requirement is based on new guidance for K through 12 schools from the CDC, but the difference from, Last school year is that in-person learning will be five days a week this time. So everybody in the building, but everyone having masks. Which makes sense because a lot of the children can't be vaccinated or just aren't vaccinated. And, you know, you you have a mixed crowd there and it's just very difficult to distance. I think they said like three feet of distance was really all they could guarantee. So masks are, are really important if you don't want people catching COVID. Maybe people do want people catching COVID. I guess that's really the only conclusion that we can draw <laughs> from all this anti-masking yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I said that there was a mixed crowd this time, there were definitely pro-mask speakers, including Terrence Sullivan, who's the director of the Kentucky Commission for Human Rights, um, a U of L professor, someone with elementary school age children. So there were people who supported the mask mandate as well. The other thing discussed at the meeting was some dual credit courses with U of L, but one of those courses includes a Pan African Studies course. Um, so I don't, I don't know if this item on the agenda is why anti CRT people are there. My guess is no. They they just want to be there because this is the what they're pushing meeting. right now. Yeah, um, but they did. This decision was part of the board's consent calendar, so they were able to do it pretty quickly without um, a lot of hullabaloo at the end of the meeting. And I guess lastly, it's worth noting that this meeting went on until 10 p.m. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I honestly thought it was going to go longer than that, but I, I saw, so you yeah. know, but that is totally ridiculous. You know, you mentioned the 45 minutes at the beginning. 
the way that those things usually work is like they take comment for 45 minutes at the beginning, do the meeting, and then anybody left who wants to speak gets the chance to speak. Right. So probably, I think I think they said, Olivia Croth had said that uh, like 25 people were left to speak. So I don't know how many were left <laughs> after they adjourned their regular meeting. Uh, but I guess probably not all 25 were able to speak. Yeah, Yeah, I think some, I watched some of the meeting on YouTube and some of them have had left or weren't there at the time that they were called at the end. But yeah. there were definitely a lot of people that were still there to make comments in the, the second part of the meeting as well. So yeah, um, long night for the JCPS school board. And I mean, I guess this just seems like something that they're going to have to continue to deal with. Well, did you, you said you watched some of it on, on YouTube when it was going on. Did you see Corey Shell singing? No, but I saw the tweets about it from yeah. um, Olivia Croth and I think the manual red eye, I, I yeah. went through some of their life. I think tweets. he's, I think he was singing the Mr. Rogers neighborhood song just to, to cut the tension, you know, to, to yeah. cool, cool everybody out a little bit. Yeah. All right. But yeah, so it was a pretty crazy school board meeting for sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, it just seems like a difficult environment for us to set school policy with, with all of this, mm-hmm. what you mentioned as hullabaloo going on around us uh, while we're trying to make some really important decisions, like how we're going to stay safe in an increasing pandemic. Uh, that we thought was in its on its last legs, and you know how we're how we're supposed to be dealing with um, the issues around race that have been brought up by you know people across the political spectrum in the past year or so, uh, and, and these are important decisions that we elect people to to to, to make, and uh, we should give them the space to make them. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening though, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I I use the word hullabaloo because one of my friends, Greg Erskine spoke at the meeting and that's what he referred to it as. And I was like, you know what? That's a good word to describe what this is. Well, good for Greg. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, he would say that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's he, talk a little he's bit. in the pro equity crowd. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. Uh, COVID continues to get much worse across the state. So we probably should be talking about it more instead of less these days. Our 14-day daily average has increased to more than 700 cases per day, and our 7-day daily average is even worse. It's at about 900 cases per day. So that's that's increasingly worse than a lot worse than it was just a few weeks ago. On Tuesday, there were more than 1,200 cases in Kentucky, and that's really the highest daily total since the winter. Uh, that was a big, big day for us, and not not in a good way. There's now 28 red counties and only 24 yellow or green county so our red now outpaces both our green and yellow it wasn't too long ago that we were we were counting green versus orange and now we're counting red versus you know yellow and green not good uh there are a few clusters of red all the counties that border mclean county are red but not mclean itself so that's kind of interesting um and, and then much of the area around warren county so warren logan simpson allen Barron, metcalf and hart that's kind of one kind of area you could kind of see it as too but that's really just kind of western kentucky the penny ryle region is is in a rough shape there uh, and then there's a lot of southeastern kentucky as well that is red so pulaski whitley bell not laurel clay jackson perry letcher and floyd so so that's several counties there that border each other there in southeast Kentucky, kind of ranging from Pulaski all the way over to Floyd. So there are two, a few one-offs. So Marion and Washington counties, which border each other. That's a very Catholic area just south of Louisville. And then Clark County, that's uh, you know Winchester, and, and then Owen County, which is in the, the greater northern Kentucky area. In terms of our urban areas, Louisville had 672 cases this week, which is the most since early April, a, a bad week here in Louisville. 
Lexington had a really big increase last week that we talked about, and they've actually saw a decrease last week. They went from 267 cases two weeks ago to just 126 last week. Uh, That's still quite a bit higher than we were trending uh, before July. Besides the past two weeks, 126, though, is the highest number since May, so we are still trending up. Our hospitalizations, which is a metric we probably need to start talking about, we have had enough cases now that that hospitalization is again an issue. Hospitalizations are on the rise. 477 Kentuckians were in the hospital with COVID-19 on Tuesday. That's the largest number since March. Deaths are a lagging indicator, um, but I, 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 and you know, we've talked about like how it's lagging indicator. Somebody has to be sick for a long time, likely with COVID, it's a long in, uh, illness, and you die at the end of it. Uh, so it can be a lagging indicator. We've talked about that before, um, but I'm very interested to see how deaths you know, change in the future. Right now, they remain very low. Um, that That's to be expected because of the, of the lagging indicator thing. Um, but another thing is that older people are much more likely to be vaccinated. 83% of the population who's older than 65 has at least one dose of the vaccine. Pretty close to that is fully vaccinated. And, and those are the people who are by far at the highest risk of dying. It's like 75% of our deaths happen uh, of people in that age group. So deaths, they're about three per day on average, which is very low compared to any other time. That could be because um, we are, it's just a lagging indicator. It hasn't happened yet, but it also might be that the people who are most likely to die are also the most likely to get vaccinated, and and it might be that deaths don't increase. It's way too early to say that for sure, but that's something I'm at least looking very closely at. Speaking of vaccines, our vaccination rate does appear to be increasing. Uh, The state doesn't actually release daily vaccine numbers over the weekend, so it's kind of tough to parse out an average, but it does seem like our our daily number of vaccines is approaching 5,000 people per day on a seven-day basis and approaching 4,000 on a 14-day basis. Uh, you know, moving daily average uh, basis, which which is much higher than it was recently. It's doubled. It was like 2,500 a few weeks ago. Louisville's weekly vaccine data shows a, a significant spike in, in dose one vaccines. It, it's up to f- uh, 5.6 thousand, 5,600. Louisville has seen two straight weeks of, of increase in dose one vaccines. And that's the first time that we've seen two weeks straight of increase in, in vaccine numbers since children were able to get vaccinated. It's really first the first raw increase we've seen uh, since we have had vaccines widely available that wasn't due, due to people you know, becoming eligible. 5,600, though, is not very many. Um, at the peak, Louisville is vaccinating almost 37,000 people per week. So 5,600 is just a drop in the bucket compared to that number. But at least we're going up and not down. And, you know, hopefully that that continues. Woodford, Franklin, Fayette, and Boone counties all have more than 60% of their population with uh, with at least one dose of vaccine. Jefferson, Oldham, Kenton, Campbell, Scott, Boyle, and Anderson all have more than 50%. And there, you know, uh, you might have seen the map floating around that shows the, the counties with more than 50%. And it is not very many, but there are a lot that are sitting right at like 46, 47, and even some at 49%. So, you know, that map could really brighten up uh, recently. But, you know, while it's good to have 50% vaccination, that is just a big round number. It's still nowhere near enough. There are a lot of places with high vaccination rates that still have a high case count. Uh, Vaccines, you can get into the red zone with, you know, 10% of your population uh, being sick or less. So, you know, and and the way that this disease would work, it works. It's really bad. So, so even, um, even with a lot of vaccinations, it's going to be pretty tough uh, unless, everybody starts stepping up. So everybody has to get that vaccine. 
Governor Bashir had a pre- COVID press conference this week. Uh, he laid out the risk of the Delta variant driving the increase and also gave recommendations for schools in 2021. And, and that's, you know, you just talked about that for JCPS. The governor didn't lay out any requirements. So school boards are not going to be required to do anything like they were last year. But Bashir did recommend masks for kids going back to school. Individual school districts will need to work out their own policies in their school board meetings, and they're going to have to dodge public comment for people worried about, you know, critical race theory or whatever while they're trying to make these decisions. Um, you know, but but basically that is what the state government is saying is that individual school boards are going to have to work this out on their own. But Jason Glass, who's the Kentucky school superintendent and, and Governor Bashir, left open the door for mandates down the road. So it may still happen in the future, even though it's not happening right now. Jasmine, this is just a really weird time for COVID, I think. You know, the Delta variant has increased the amount of COVID in our state. It's getting kind of scary out there. There are more breakthrough cases among vaccinated people because there's just so much COVID. People are just getting exposed to it more and more often. But one of the things we can pretty much take solace in is that even vaccinated people who catch the virus almost always have a mild case. Very few people who even catch it, uh, which is a lower number uh, than, than usual, uh, they have a mild case and then they get over it. And, and that's how the vaccine works. It stimulates an immune response. So when the virus gets into your body, it knows how to fight it off. So, you know, for vaccinated people, I mean, just walking around and, and, and going to places, the, vac- the the pandemic still seems mostly like over. I don't think people's behavior has really, you know, gone back to where we were in the winter and spring. And honestly, I'm not sure if they should. The vaccine works really well, even against the Delta variant. The unvaccinated, however, are facing an extremely dangerous time, which they should be very scared of. But they have an easy solution. Just go get the free, easily accessible vaccine. And, you know, I totally understand that there's barriers for a lot of people out there to get it. Um, But, you know, given the amount of danger out there, it's worth it to try to, uh, you know, try to do what you can to overcome those barriers if they exist in your life. So there you go. That's COVID. Uh, Anything in in your life that's COVID related that you think has been interesting over the past week? Well, today, Governor Bashir announced a mask mandate for state employees and visitors in state buildings. That's right. Yeah. So I think that means it's coming for my employment as well, even though we're not officially a state job. Yeah. But do you feel good about that? Are you, are you happy about that recommendation? Yeah, I'm okay with that. Um, I think for me, you know, after getting vaccinated and starting to go out a little bit more, my husband and I started planning vacations and things like that. And now I'm taking a step back and thinking about. Yeah. Is that wise? <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I guess this is just life now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. A couple of quick hits before we get out of here. Uh, you wrote this first one down, Jasmine. Why don't you read it for us? So we do have some details this week about the potential opioid settlement with um, pharmaceutical companies that Daniel Cameron um, has mentioned in the last few weeks. So Kentucky's share is potentially $460 million that would be paid out over 18 years, and the funds will be used to combat addiction. So local governments would get half of the funds, and then the state would receive the other half. And so... Um, this settlement hasn't gone through yet, but Daniel Cameron said he's optimistic about it. All right. Well, there's that. Um, well, that's a that's a complicated story. I I, I wonder if everybody's going to opt into it, but you know, I think mm-hmm. you know it's good that it's there. It's a good baseline to start with. 
I just have a few more that I didn't write down, Jasmine, so I'm sorry. Okay. This may be surprising to you. Uh, but uh, Fancy Farm, um, that's going to be going on here uh, in a couple weeks, and I don't think there's going to be any Democrats. Uh, Andy Bashir said he wasn't going to attend citing the Delta variant, and uh, I mean, I think most of the counties out there in far western Kentucky are at least in the orange area, and I think that some of them out there have gone into the red quite a bit. It doesn't seem like, we talked before, it doesn't seem like they're going to be, be taking any precautions at all. Um, so he's opted out and so have all the Democrats. So, uh, yeah, it'll be a Republican only affair. It sounds like, so I don't know. That's maybe the first time that that's ever happened. Uh, so that's, what's going on there. Um, Elizabeth Warren, the Senator from Massachusetts has endorsed Charles Booker in the U S Senate race. Um, she did that before. I actually think she switched. She was an early Amy McGrath supporter, uh, and then switched to Charles Booker. So she's endorsed early again. Um, but I have a feeling that she will probably stick with this one throughout the entire mm-hmm. primary. But you know, that's that's that. Uh, yeah, those were those were two things I thought were notable. But yeah, uh, there you go. Um, okay, so let's get to our interview with Rachel Roberts. Rachel Roberts is a Kentucky State Representative from Campbell County in Northern Kentucky. She was first elected in a special election in 2020 and won her first full term to her seat later that year. In this year's term in the legislature, she is unveiling a plan to legalize marijuana in Kentucky after acting as the chief sponsor of one of the bills which had been championed by Cluster Howard in the past. Um, So we invited her today to talk about her new plan. So Rachel Roberts, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Robert. It's always nice to be here. Yeah, we are always happy to have you. So marijuana is kind of an issue that has seen a lot of action in other states. There are states other than Kentucky that have made a lot of changes to their marijuana laws over the past few years. Kentucky's marijuana policy, of course, hasn't changed at all. So can you tell us a a little bit more about the national movement for marijuana reform and kind of how Kentucky's falling behind on this issue? Yeah, so at this point, 36 states and four territories have legalized cannabis in some form, and exactly half of those are non-medical states, right? So adult use. Uh, In November of last year, voters in Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and uh, South Dakota approved measures for non-medical use. Um, And, you know, that's a diverse group of states. And then this year, that was followed by legislation um, being enacted in New York, Virginia, New Mexico, and Connecticut. So this is growing um, nationwide. It's starting to get closer and closer to Kentucky. You know, we have medical in um, Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, Virginia now. So, you know, it's, it's starting to come right around us. But here's the thing is that when the federal government changes the federal laws go- governing cannabis, which I believe is on the horizon, these 36 states will have a regulatory framework in place. And unless we pass this kind of legislation that I'm working on, Kentucky won't and will be late to the table in something that we are uniquely poised to be exceptional at. This should be a Kentucky proud product. We are the bluegrass state. This is, you know, this could be the new signature industry for us right up there with bourbon and horse racing. Cannabis can be our next signature industry here and we should be um, setting ourselves up for success. Yeah, so we're definitely behind, but it's not as if we've had no legislation proposed. So Representative Cluster Howard has for years sponsored a bill which would reform Kentucky's marijuana laws. In 2020, you were the main sponsor of one of the bills that took up his work. And so we haven't seen the text of your new bill, but we understand that the 2021 version of the marijuana bill will be different. So can you tell us a little bit about your new plan? 
Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, this bill is carried by Representative Cluster Howard for several years, which I think is telling. Um, and last year, myself and then Representative Cole Carney put forward similar bills on this as well. So what that shows you is that there's desire for this. There's um, draw for this. And um, we're hearing from our constituents, not just in northern Kentucky, not just in Louisville, but in eastern Kentucky, all throughout the state. So I think, you know, so I think first of all, that's good. There's many of us who are really focused on this issue right now. Um, Cluster and I, Representative Howard and I are friends. And when he was uh, leaving, I asked him if I could you know, take his bill and work on it. It was a good framework. I was new to the legislature, so I didn't have as much time last session to really dive into it and figure out just how comprehensive this could be in the time work that was allotted before I needed to file it last year, which is sort of evidenced by how late in the session I filed it. So as soon as I filed it last year, I knew that that was a bill that was filed to move the conver- keep moving the conversation forward, but my intention was always as soon as the session was over, it was time to take this bill down to the studs and do it properly. So many of the states that have legalized adult use cannabis, you know, had much more robust um, hemp programs or medical programs first, and then added recreational or adult use on top of that. So there was already a lot of regulatory framework in place. We don't have that luxury in Kentucky. So this bill that I'm working on um, and have been working on diligently for about the last six months in truth, um, we've truly took down to the studs and it will be a completely comprehensive cannabis bill, everything from seed to adult use. It will envelop hemp. It will envelop medical. It will set up the frameworks for oversight and licensure We're you know, we're working on some messaging around it and we're really focused on let's grow and let being an acronym. So L E T T legalize, expunge, treat, and tax. So this bill will include, you know, the full decriminalization of the product. It will include expungement for uh, cannabis-related offenses. Um, those will be automatic expungements as well as a portal for people to come in and request expungement to try and speed the process up for themselves. Um, treatment, you know, this is something I've been talking about since way before I got elected. When I first started thinking about running for office, I was speaking to someone and they said, give me an example of a policy you would enact. And this was like four years ago. And I said, well, I think Kentucky should legalize cannabis, tax it, and use the money to fund treatment programs for our increasing opioid crisis. That is built into this, you know, is baked into the pie as far as this bill goes. So that's um, in the treatment aspects of this bill. So it is huge and comprehensive. And the reason you haven't seen it, Robert, is because we are still actively writing it. I don't think anyone will see the full bill, probably not until session starts, because I'm not trying to be the first to talk about weed. I'm trying to be the first person to do it right. So I'm going to take as much time as I need and talk to as many stakeholders as I need to, to get this bill as right as it can be, knowing that, you know, it is a work in progress and will continue to be a work in progress. My sincere hope is that the feds will flip the switch um, and decriminalize cannabis at the federal level, and that we will have thought through enough of this um, to really set Kentucky up to be uniquely poised to capitalize on this in the way that I know that we can as soon as that comes to market here. You mentioned that you're friends with Cluster Howard. So is he still involved at all in the crafting of this legislation? And if so, you know, what does he think of the new plan? 
So Closer and I, um, Representative Howard and I, uh, we do still speak regularly. I actually texted with him today, um, sort of anticipation of talking to you all. But I also <laughs> just love, for those of you who are listening who may not have ever met or heard Cluster uh, speak, he's just, like, you just want Cluster to read a bedtime story. Like, mm-hmm. he's got the best Eastern Kentucky draw. He's yeah. just so much fun to speak to. And, um, you know, he's just, he's a very real person who just puts it like it is. So um, wherever this bill ends up, it will always you know, be because of the seeds that Representative Howard planted beforehand. And, you know, I think it's safe to say that I am moving forward on this with his full blessing. Yeah. Um, So last year, there were a couple of marijuana bills that were mostly the same. You know, do you think that the Democratic caucus will all be united behind this new bill next session? Um. I don't know that the entire caucus will be united behind it. And I don't know that we should be, you know, we don't all represent uh, similar districts. Northern Kentucky has very different interests than Representative Hatton's district does, for instance, or Representative Tackett Lafferty's district may. So I don't know that, you know, it would be a unified, that every single Democrat would get behind it, nor do I necessarily think that that they should if they need to represent their own districts. Um, I do think that there is a huge amount of support for this in the Democratic caucus. I think there's a fair amount of support for this in the Republican caucus too, although they're not as vociferous about it as some of us are. Um, But I would anticipate that there'll be multiple cannabis bills that get filed this year and that they'll be different because you know, I'm really trying to look at this as a comprehensive bill and a bill that sets us up for success when the feds flip the switch. That's not to say that if I'm, you know, I'm wrong and the General Assembly changes its tonality this next year and I can get enough people behind this that the bill couldn't be enacted tomorrow or, well, you know, July of next year. Um, But my eye is really on how to set us up when the federal law changes. I wouldn't be surprised if we see another one that's um, really more focused on decriminalization than the rest of, you know, the the licensure and things along those lines. So I, I think... This issue is growing. More and more representatives are hearing from their constituents about this. Uh, and I think, you know, any of these really big policy changes, it always behooves us to put several bills up. Not only does that show that a whole bunch of people are interested, but as I mentioned, like a decriminalization bill may be the first step. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I would that's what I expect. will happen. Yeah. As, you know, as someone interested in the criminal legal system, this is kind of what we've seen with reforms there too, is someone puts out the comprehensive legislation, but it's really hard to get everyone to back that. So we're able to do these things piecemeal. So I definitely, you know, get where you're coming from there. Yeah. Yeah. Also, if anybody uh, hasn't ever heard Representative Howard, we did an interview with him like two years ago and it's just worth Mm -hmm. it just to hear him talk, right? That's like the whole draw. Uh, Yeah. So you mentioned that the federal change would may necessitate a lot of these changes. And and I think that that's definitely astute. Uh, It's something I think a lot of us are hoping for, but it hasn't happened yet. And there's no guarantee that it will happen. That's for sure. Uh, And, you know, we live in a state with a Republican supermajority in both chambers of the legislature. And, you know, you have a Democratic plan and and, uh it's i think you have been very forthright in saying it's unlikely this plan will pass the legislature as you're writing it right now It, it it's not really even designed to do that so how do you see republicans uh reacting to this plan do you feel like there are people who support part of it do you feel like some of it will see action this session is that something that you might see action on next session how have you started any of those conversations or is that something for another time and another day Those conversations are just getting started because, as I mentioned to you, I've been bringing a lot of stakeholders to the table. So I've really spent the last six months going around the state and speaking with farmers 
speaking with manufacturers, speaking with retailers, speaking with advocacy groups, advocacy groups from the medical marijuana side of things and uh, minorities for medical marijuana out of Louisville, for instance. Um, and then we have started putting together focus groups to meet with these stakeholders because, you know, expert. I'm not. I own a yoga studio, so you might think I was, but I'm just not. So I need to talk to experts in all of these fields because we see so often that we write legislation for industries we don't understand. So I wanted to bring together the stakeholders. You know, who's going to be able to tell me better about what kind of what size of a canopy or how many plants need to be grown in a greenhouse situation to make the economics work out. I can sit in a room with a bunch of people who don't know and I can say a thousand plants sounds like a lot, but if I don't know how much it costs to build a greenhouse and that a thousand plants is probably not going to get you the return on investment that you'd ever need to make that that investment, then I'm going to set it up for failure, right? So far, the focus has been talking to the stakeholders and the people that will be most affected by this legislation. Once I feel like we're just a little bit further along um, and I have pen to paper, then that's really the time for me to go around to to everyone and mm-hmm. not just the Republicans. I mean, I, I need to sell this to my Democratic colleagues as well um, and see where I can get by in and continue to move the conversation forward. Mm-hmm. Jasmine mentioned, uh, you know, criminal justice in a different context. But uh, one of the places where I think, you know, negotiations on this issue do often end up, especially with the Republicans involved, is on the expungement and the criminal justice, justice components of this. Uh, you know, I think it's it's likely if you're going to get something passed through a Republican legislature that you're going to have to give up on some of those things. But talk to us about how important the uh, the criminal justice and expungement portions are to this overall plan. Uh, is that some, I mean, uh, w- if those come up in negotiations, how important do you think they'll be to the Democrats on the negotiating side? Well, I can tell you that it's vastly important to me um, for for two reasons. Right, it's the right thing to do. We're seeing um, a lot of people still incarcerated for something that is legal in 36 states. Now, um, from a financial standpoint, and that's one of the conversation points here. You know, that's one of there. Are, when I talk to different people, we're gonna t- they're gonna have different um, parts of this that appeal to them. And for many people on the opposite side, it's gonna be the revenue generation. And the truth of the matter is, it's not gonna generate. It's not a panacea. It's not gonna fix all of our problems. It's, it's not gonna raise enough money to fix the Brunswick Bridge. I wish it would. It's probably not. You know, but. What it will do is save us a fortune in the criminal justice side of things and in incarceration. It's the right thing to do um, socially, justice-wise, and economically. Uh, it's, it's wildly important to me. And I'll tell you, we've had a lot of conversations about how the expungement should work. Um, you know, we want automatic expungement, but I understand what that could look like from a, just from a state management standpoint, you know, who then is in charge of finding all these misdemeanor records and then finding accurate data on where people who had those misdemeanor charges now live and so on and so forth. So I want it to work two ways. I want there to be an automatic expungement, but I also want there be, to be a portal. This is uh, a model that the governor did, I believe, when he uh, restored some felony voting rights right after he got elected. So, you know, a push and a pull method, right? You can wait for the state to find you and expunge it, or you can enter your data and, and work to get that expunged more quickly. My real goals with that are that it is as easy as possible and that it's free. So I don't need, I don't want anyone to need an attorney to be able to get their record expunged for this. Sorry, Jasmine. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Besides marijuana, are there any other issues that you're working on for the upcoming session that you want to go ahead and talk to us about? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll be pre-filing some of the bills. Well, really all of the bills that I filed last year because, spoiler alert, not a lot of Democratic (laughs) bills made it into laws last year. Um, 
I will tell you that I did have one make it all the way through, which passed as Senate Bill 52, which was um, a criminal justice police reform bill, which I'm really, really proud of. And that was a really bipartisan effort. So that was great. And it was great for me as a new legislator to figure out how to get things done. And I think, you know, as Democrats, so often people will say, you know, it must be horrible. You're in this hyper minority. You can't get anything passed. And I say, if I take my ego out of it, I can't. Now, cannabis may not be the thing this year, something that big, but there's so much middle ground still where we can still get some st- stuff done. And Senate Bill 52 is a good example of that. So the um, so I'm going to keep with that theme. Um, that bill that I put forward last year, which was, I believe, House Bill 81, which became Senate Bill 52, um, that got a constituent to call me to mention to me that there are some Class A misdemeanors that you can um, be convicted of that do not preclude you from becoming a police officer in the state of Kentucky. And some of these include class A's that that are sexual offenses that people plead down to, including some child sexual offenses. I think we can all agree that we don't want someone with a child sexual offense conviction on their record being a police officer in the state of Kentucky. So that's one of the bills I'm working on. Um, Also on the criminal justice side is BR 178, which I filed last year. It's a victim's rights bill. So it prohibits employers from discharging or retaliating against an employee who's a crime victim who has to leave work to participate in the trial around the crime that they were victimized through. So I'll be refiling that again. Um, And then it's me. So it's a whole bunch of mental health care and health care bills, which I care super passionately and deeply about. Um, The first of those I filed last year uh, what is the idea that we would start to really normalize mental health care in the state and that every insurer in the state, Medicare, Medicaid, college insurance, any insurer would cover at 100% a once a year mental health annual exam so that we start having mental health annuals just like we have physical annuals. So that you have a regular ongoing relationship with a mental health provider so that if God forbid somewhere down the line you find yourself in crisis, you're not calling a stranger and you know who to talk to so that we can really simplify mental health care throughout the state. I'll be filing some maternal health bills again this year. Um, I was really proud of our women, Democratic Women's Caucus last year for putting together this amazing slate of maternal health care bills. Um, so the two that I'll be filing this year um, deal with postpartum. One deals with postpartum depression and one is for mental health benefits for mothers who suffer, suffer miscarriage, which is a really forgotten group of mothers, not only in the Commonwealth, but throughout the country. And I really want to make sure that we start giving women who suffer miscarriage, families who suffer miscarriage, the space they need to heal after something like that. And then on um, healthcare, uh, Representative Sherilyn Stevenson and I, again, will be uh, primarily co-sponsoring together an all-payers database So if any of your listeners are interested in this, this basically would allow you to shop for care. So there's a a model out there, there's several models out there, but one I really like is in Colorado, it's civic.org and civic is C-I-V-H-C. So you can go into civic.org if you want to see this. And I, in anticipation of this call tonight, I looked up a couple of things. So this is for the state of Colorado. So if you typed in zip code 81623, which is a suburban slash rural zip code in Colorado, and you look up the price for an x-ray for your wrist, the prices range from $30 for that x-ray to $590 for that x-ray. The $30 x-ray is 100 miles away, and the $590 x-ray is 50 miles away. So if I'm planning the finances for my family, I'm probably willing to drive an extra 50 miles to save myself $560. So I want us to have that in Kentucky so that um, Sherilyn Stevenson, Representative Stevenson and I both want us to have this in Kentucky so that 
you know, we as educated consumers can start making good healthcare decisions that way. If you have a high deductible and all you need is an x-ray, you know, it's probably worth it to drive to the clinic where it's 30 bucks to get your x-ray and just pay out of pocket for that. Possibly worth it for you. It's kind of a shame that people have to do that kind of shopping. And that's all due to the newer like high deductible rate plans. But it is good uh, that that exists. Man, it's such a mess trying to figure out where to get things done, especially you know, even in town in Louisville, uh, you know, we have lots of options. We have no idea what any of these things are going to cost. So it's a, it's a big <laughs> mess. This is something I've been talking about for a long time. So I'm glad somebody's taking it up. Uh, yes. Back to marijuana, though, as we end here, you know, this is a huge issue. A lot of people across the state are very passionate about it. Um, it is something we're way behind on. And I know a lot of people want to make their voices heard on this issue. If people are interested in doing that, how, how can they connect with, with you or, or the movement that you're trying to build here? Awesome. Thanks. Um, the first thing I would do is ask everybody to follow me on social. It's at Rachel, the number four KY, R-A-C-H-E-L four KY. Um, and I ask you to follow me there because we are working on some petition stuff. And also every once in a while, I'll post these links when we have focus groups coming up. And if, you know, if you have a, an area of expertise that you really want to have your voice heard on, those focus groups are a great way for us to get your name in the queue. So we know who to talk to as we're, you know, trying to make decisions about the, all the aspects of this industry. So follow me there. Um, you can go to my website, Rachel for Kentucky, all spelled out. And then of course you can reach me through the legislative website and, uh, and all of our contact information is there as well. All right, Rachel Roberts, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You guys are the best. Stay well, everyone. Hope to see y'all soon. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>